everybody's looking for the key to success to help them grow, to become more successful. You're not going to find it in a sales book. You're not going to find it in a marketing book, a book on competitive advantage, a book on strategy, a book on innovation. No, it's going to be an understanding how to build mental toughness, resiliency. That's what you need. That it's a set up, not a setback. Because I refuse to allow a negative circumstance to dictate my life. You think it's actually going to work out that way. (laughs) Here's the thing that you don't understand. Is that it's never going to beat me down. It's never going to defeat me. I'm never going to allow this to beat me. Because life doesn't happen to me. It happens for me. There are demons all around us. Demons in the form of fear. Anxiety, guilt, depression, sadness, bullying, learned helplessness, negativity. And if we allow these demons to control us, we will only continue to lose the battle on mental health. It's time for us to cut the crap from our lives and go on offense against these demons by building mental toughness and resiliency. That's why you're here. My name is Ryan Caligiuri, and welcome to the Cut the Crap Show. What is shaking, everybody? Thank you so much for joining yours truly, Ryan Caligiuri, on this week's episode of the Cut the Crap Show, where every single week, you know what I'm doing here, reading a book, condensing that book down to its core golden nuggets, bringing the author on the show to have a conversation about the golden nuggets every single week, just trying to save you a little bit of time, bring you some information that can spark change in your life, and help you build mental toughness and resilience. So what am I bringing you this week to help you build mental toughness and resilience? I'm bringing you a book by, well, obviously I'm bringing you a book. I bring you a book every damn week. But this week I'm bringing you a book by Dr. George Everly. And he wrote a book called Stronger, Develop the Resilience You Need to Succeed. Now this is one of those special episodes where I'm telling you, get a pad out, a piece of paper, and a pen. Because you're going to take down a lot of notes. There are so many great takeaways from this. And I'm going to get Dr. Everly on the show again. Because he's written a number of other books that deal with resilience and mental toughness. So I got to get him back on. He was such a great guest. Such detailed answers to all my questions. So I know you're going to enjoy this one. I know you're going to get a lot of takeaways from this. And you're going to learn a hell of a lot about building resilience. I guarantee you there's going to be a golden nugget in here that you're going to be able to take forward. And help you become more mentally tough. More resilient. In any case, I had to ask Dr. Everly to introduce himself to me and all of you out there in Cut the Crap Nation. My background was in, uh, interestingly enough, my first two degrees were in uh, business. Hmm. My major was marketing, and then I went into organizational development. Uh, Was inclined to go into academia after that, but uh, my first case of resilience, I ran into a case of high blood pressure. Hmm. And uh, at age 24, which is a little unusual. So I went to my family physician and uh, he was loath to uh, prescribe medications and said, uh, you really need to get a handle on this yourself. So uh, that changed my career, changed my personal focus in life. Um, Went back to school, became a neuroscientist of all things, studied medical physiology. But my focus was really uh, the middle of the brain which is where stress comes from, because apparently my high blood pressure was stress-related. So uh, I studied 
all about that part of the brain and how it could make people sick, but also how it could make people not only better, but stronger. And then uh, was out of school for a few years and uh, decided that I wanted to uh, learn more about helping people change. So I went back to school and became a clinical psychologist and subspecialty in neuropsychology. Um, And my specialty became something called post-traumatic stress disorder, the most severe psychiatric disorder that affects otherwise healthy people. Uh, I'd written some of the first books and papers on that subject, and uh, that became my focus. Hmm. I uh, went into crisis intervention, disaster mental health, and after that, as evidence I'm not the smartest guy around, um, realized that perhaps I should shift my evidence-based research from uh, treating people who are already ill to preventing it. Hmm. So that changed again. Uh, spent some time in Oklahoma City after the Oklahoma City bombing. Spent about a year and a half, two years in New York after the uh, World Trade Center uh, terrorist attacks, working for the New York City hmm. Police Department. Uh, even went to uh, the state of Kuwait, where I became a senior advisor to the Emir of Kuwait after the mm-hmm. uh, first Gulf War mm-hmm. uh, there. And we were uh, oriented toward helping a country, in this case, mm. be resilient. So my focus has been uh, human resilience. Mm. And we have some of the longest running data on it, I believe, from a scientific standpoint. So now I spend my time at the Johns Hopkins University where I uh, teach classes in uh, stress management, human resilience, and public health. So now that we know a little bit about Dr. Everly, let's get right into this one with golden nugget number one. He brings up a term that I really, really liked called psychological body armor. Psychological body armor, he talks about this being the resilience that everybody has. The ability to be resilient is your psychological body armor. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into this one with him. Well, there's a lot of research, a lot of writing, especially from the the trade magazines on this thing, resilience. Um, But we approach it from what we call an an evidence-based or research point of view. We really wanted to understand what this thing was, Mm -hmm. uh, this term that had been bantered around. And and many of the definitions were actually contradictory. So uh, a number of us at the the School of Medicine put our heads together and said, let's let's – pretend we just discovered this thing. What is it? Well, what we discovered was that resilience actually consisted of not one thing, as is typically the understanding, but rather two things. And, And this was a major breakthrough for us, because if it is true, it suggests that we can actually double somebody's effectiveness in being resilient. So what we discovered was there was a preventative resilience. We'll call it that. Think of it as immunity, psychological immunity to stress. Who wouldn't like that? (laughs) So we we used a we coined a little term psychological body armor. So as soldiers and police officers wear physical body armor, why can't we equip them and maybe everyone else with psychological body armor? What What a kind of cool idea if we can pull it off. The second type of resilience, however, was reactive resilience, which really is the denotation of the word. Resilience means to bounce back. So to bounce back, it means you have to have gotten knocked down in the first place. So now we have two factors, not one. And this was exciting to us, that our question was, were they 
two variations on the same thing, or were they really, really different? Because if they're different, again, we can probably double somebody's stress ability to handle stress. And our research ultimately discovered that there were two different brain centers involved, two different physiologies involved. But more importantly, there were two different ways of learning to be immune and how to bounce back once you fall down. So at this point, I really want to kick into the meat of the book, which are the five attributes that constitute resilience. So before we can get into each one of them, I was just curious as to how he came up with five. Why was it five? How did they come to this idea? Because to me, I always thought that resilience was just one thing. It was just bouncing back. You know, you saw a setback and instead you changed it around. You said, nah, this is a setup for something more. Or there's a lesson here that I have to learn. And so I'm going to learn from it and then bounce back. But he's adding a little bit more depth to it by saying that there's five things that constitute resilience. So before we broke into the meat of the book, I had to ask him just to clarify this. We, we wanted to find out what resilience then consisted of. If, the, if this was our heuristic, if, this was our, our, if these were our two categories, what populated those two categories? So we've been doing research since about 1990, believe it or not, on the role of resilience and psychological toxicity. So we discovered, for example, that from our data at least, the most toxic psychological state is worry. Just thinking about something negative over and over and over again. And it actually predicts psychological illness, but physical illness as well. Hmm. So then we took those same data, if you will, think of this as a metaphor, and we held them up to a mirror. And we said, if that's psychological toxicity, what is psychological immunity? Well, it's the opposite of everything. And, and then we started down that particular path. We felt that numbers are numbers. Uh, they don't tell stories like people do. So ultimately, the most fun of our whole enterprise here has been interviewing people that we thought were highly resilient, both immune as well as the ability to bounce back. So the book Stronger came out of our desire to just talk to people. When we talked to a wide variety of people, uh, most did not make it into the book, by the way, just from uh, uh, space constraints. But we found that there were factors that span professions, spanned age groups, generations, spanned injuries, if you will. So we spoke to highly resilient people, whether they were medical patients, whether they're professional athletes, politicians, uh, or warriors, special operators like SEALs and Delta Force. And what we discovered was that the same factors transcended all of those groups. And there were basically five of them. All right, so I've teased enough at the five attributes that constitute resilience. So I want to crack right into this one right now by looking at the first trait, active optimism is the first trait that makes up resilience. When you're actively optimistic, you become an agent of change, not only in your life, but in other people's lives as well. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Optimism is so important. There's people out there who take pride in being pessimists, being the devil's advocate. I say, screw that. Be the optimist. Work hard to be the optimist. There's actual biological benefits to you being optimistic. If you're optimistic, your body becomes more resilient. 
and you become supercharged with moderate increases of hormones like adrenaline, noradrenaline, gamma aminobutyric acid, neuropeptide Y, and cortisol. And this surge in hormones, it gives you better recollection, it gives you higher pain tolerance, quicker reactions, and greater awareness and strength. So there's a lot of benefits to being optimistic. So here, Dr. Everly goes into more detail on the first attribute of resilience. So our first discovery was optimism is not optimism is not optimism. So we took an optimism survey and we passed it out to people and we said, are you an optimistic person? Now, we had already divided them into two groups, people that were highly resilient versus those that were not so resilient. And we knew that ahead of time, who they were. We wanted to see if their surveys were different. You ready for this, Ryan? Can't wait. There was no, no difference. <laughs> so we were flummoxed by the whole thing. <laughs> so we said, okay, well, maybe the scale isn't measuring what we wanted to measure. So you know what you do? You ask a question. You just say, okay, I give up. What's optimism? And that's where we were just slammed in the face. Hmm. The answer divided the two groups almost perfectly. The answer was in the low resilience group, they said, I hope things will turn out well. I believe things will turn out well. I'll throw this back in your court. What did the high resilience group say? Uh, These people have far more certainty in their language. The others are saying believe, hope. I believe those with high levels of, 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 of resilience, they're more certain about their answers. They know. Yeah, and, and you know why they know? Because their answer was, I believe things will turn out well. I hope things will turn out well because I will make them turn out well. Nice. And that's where we took the term, not just optimism, active optimism. Mm-hmm. It is proactive. You must make things happen. As the phrase go, praise I'm sorry, pray, but row the boat. Mm. And, uh, and these people are rowing the boat. So at the core of this active optimism idea is the idea of self-efficacy and the self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. That's really the core of it. So we, we were told as children, think good thoughts and good things will happen. You know, our parents told us mm-hmm. that probably. Little did they know that that was absolutely correct. There is a science that proves that. And in later books, I've detailed more of that science. But the idea is that if you believe something is going to happen that is under your control, now that's the key, that's under your control, if you believe it will happen, the likelihood, the probability dramatically increases. It changes your physiology it changes blood flow, it changes acid secretions in the stomach, it increases muscle tension and strength. It's it's amazing. Hmm. But on the other hand, if you have a negative thought, if you say, well, I'm going to try this, but I probably won't succeed, guess what? You probably won't succeed. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons, though, behind it, and I don't mean it to sound like magic or something, um, one of the reasons is that the self-efficacious person, the person that believes in the self-fulfilling prophecy, if they fail, they see that as a stepping stone to success. Hmm. The person that has the negative belief fails, as we all do with mm-hmm. things. They fail and they give up because they said, ah, that confirms my suspicion. <laughs> so it's not magic, 
it's not some strange psychological thing. It, it actually makes perfect sense. If you believe you're going to succeed, you see failure, stumbling as just a, a speed bump, if you will. Mm-hmm. However, the person that is negative about the world, which, by the way, about 80% of people are negative. Oof. If you're negative, then you give up. Mm-hmm. And a Stanford, very famous Stanford doctor, Dr. Bandura, Albert Bandura, gave us a formula. Simple steps based on 40 years of research. And, and he basically said, you want to build self-efficacy. You want to build a positive sense of self-esteem. And anybody that has children should just write this down or read his work. He said, first and foremost, have success. Success begets success. If you can't have a big success, have a little success, but have one success every day. Second thing you can do is hang around with people who are successful. It's contagious. Third thing you can do is find a mentor, someone who believes in you perhaps more than you believe in yourself, someone who will be there to catch you when you fall down. And the fourth and final is learn to control your impulses, road rage, airline rage, blowing up, saying things that you immediately retract. That's not helpful. So we need to learn how to control that. Ah, I love those four points. Got to run over them again. The first one, personal attainment. Success breeds success. Start with small successes to boost your confidence. That's the first one. The second, observation. Watch people who are just like you attain their goals and just assume that if they can reach their goals, so can you. The third one, encouragement and support. The more support you have, the easier it's going to be to develop self-confidence and optimism. People will support you if you support them. Very simple. And the last one, number four, self-control. You got to be calm. You got to look beyond instant gratification. You have to control your urges, control your anger, control your emotions. And you got to make sure you keep yourself in a positive state of mind. Self-control. So important, those four pieces. Keep those ones in mind. So as we wrap up this point about active optimism, I had to ask a question about negativity because I feel personally that there's far too much negativity in our world today. And I think that some people are even valuing negativity and pessimism over being an optimist. And these people think that optimists are just, honestly, I've, I've heard people call optimists idiots. Ah, uh, you're just looking at the world with rosy colored sunglasses on. And I absolutely hate that. Completely disagree with people like that. And listen, you want to be a pessimist? You want to be negative? Go ahead and be negative. But get the hell out of my face. Don't get in my space. Stay away from me. So I had to ask Dr. Everly, why is negativity taking over our world today? Yeah, I I would absolutely agree. I have to put on my neuroscientist hat, and uh, it seems that negativity is ingrained in that middle of the brain. It's an area called the limbic, L-I-M-B-I-C, limbic system. That's where emotions and fear and anger and the fight-or-flight response is. And what we find is that if we had to guess why most people are wired that way, it's a survival mechanism. You scan the environment for threats. You anticipate threats that sometimes aren't there. You spend a lot of energy preparing for those threats, many of them that never happen. Uh, but probably a long time ago, it, that, that served a survival function. To some degree, it probably does today. 
it's not a bad saying unless it consumes you, unless it becomes who you are. And unfortunately, that, that is the case. How many people do you know? When you give them a compliment, they say, oh, it was nothing. Oh, it was pure luck or whatever. <laughs> and, and yet they worked hard, and, and they would be disappointed if you didn't compliment them. <laughs> but, but we are trained through social convention as well as biology uh, to be negative, I'm afraid. So if we've been trained to be negative over time, I'd argue that you can also be trained to become positive. And it's so damn important because if you stay in that negative state of mind, you might be proud of that negative state of mind. You might be proud to be the devil's advocate, be proud to be the pessimist. But I'll argue this. You can't stay in that state too long because it will consume you. You will die psychologically. It's scary. It's so scary. And you might be that person. Actually, you're probably not that person. If you're listening to this show, you're probably not somebody who is overly negative or overly pessimistic. And if you are then I'm glad you're here on the show listening to this. But now I'm just curious, like, what do you do if you are negative? If you're a negative person, you're hanging around negative people, like, what do you do to try to train yourself to be positive? You asked the question, what do we need to do? Um, The single best predictor of human resilience, jumping ahead a little bit, Mm -hmm. is the support of other people. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was a clinical psychologist practicing at a hospital in private practice for years and years and years. And uh, finally I retired, but you know what I do now? I do coaching. I do long distance coaching over the telephone with people sometimes, and they're very successful people. And in some cases they're successful in spite of their negativity, or they have hit a block in their career and they need to get past it. So we go back to Bandura's third um, basic criteria for building self-efficacy and self-fulfilling prophecy. And, it's, and it's, it's having a mentor, having a coach, having somebody to push you a little bit further. Now, it doesn't have to be a professional like myself. It could be a parent. It could be a, it could be a coach for a teenager. It could be uh, a supervisor at work. But somebody has to be able to stand outside of your perspective and see it a little bit more objectively. And instill whenever possible and realistic that sense of hope because you talk about dying psychologically Mm -hmm. that happens when you lose hope Hmm. since dr everly set us up so nicely we're going to break into the second attribute of resilience interpersonal support now aristotle the great philosopher he once said that the group always outperforms its individual members charles darwin he even said that the great value is in being a part of a group. He actually said that the tribes that would naturally prevail would be those members who defend each other and make sacrifices for the good of their community. So in other words, you'll get further when people have your back. The more supporting and sustaining relationships you have, the easier things will go for you. So now let's break into the importance of interpersonal relationships in building resilience. Well... One of the questions I ask people is, who has your back? We have known since the mid-1970s that loneliness predicts heart disease, predicts diabetes, predicts um, unhappiness uh, for the vast majority of people. Now, loneliness must be defined as being alone and not wanting to be alone. There are some of us who are absolutely happy being alone, and you know what? 
that's okay. Mm-hmm. Loneliness is, no, I want to be connected to somebody and I'm not. This is where, to get off on a slight tangent, the whole concept of bullying becomes so toxic to a society. And we think of bullying in junior or middle school now, high school, but there's bullying in the professional world as well. It is so remarkably toxic. And you know what the antidote to bullying is? I mean, I've read school psychologist papers, et cetera. The antidote, interestingly enough, which they often miss, is the support of someone else. Hmm. So it keeps coming back. Do you have a mentor? Who has your back? So when I ask people, who has your back, and they pause more than three seconds, I know we have a problem. Hmm. We ask, you know, what defines friendship? And the people that have someone in their corner will say, my friend is a person that I can call 24-7 and ask almost anything of, and I know they'll be there. You know what? How many times do you use the word friend, but it doesn't really apply to that definition? Mm-hmm. You know, we may have 100 acquaintances, but if you have three friends, you're very lucky. I just had a pause for a second here because I loved what Dr. Everly shared with us about bullying. And the best antidote to bullying is having somebody in your corner, having somebody support you. I remember times when I was growing up and, you know, school or in the workplace They were bullies, a lot of them. And what got me through that wasn't my own confidence, wasn't the fact that I didn't care, but it was the fact that I had people in my corner who supported me. I had backup. And the crazy thing about this is that I read the book and it didn't click for me yet. And then when Dr. Everly brought this up, all of a sudden, obviously it just makes sense. And then I go back in time to whenever I was bullied or whenever there was a bully in the workplace or what have you. And there's a lot of jerks out there who just like to flex their muscles and they have big egos and they want to be right all the time. And I know that you're listening to this. You know people who are like this. Maybe in your personal life, probably in your professional life, I deal with a lot of them. A lot of sales consultants out there. Those of you who've worked with me in the past, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Sales consultants, marketing consultants, people who think they got it all figured out. They come in there and they push people around saying, you're doing this wrong or you're an idiot. You're stupid. I'm the right one here. Everyone shut your mouths and listen to me. I hate people like that. It's one of the biggest reasons why I work for myself so I don't have to be subjected to that all the time. But if you're not as lucky as me and you can't work on your own or work by yourself, then you have to have backup. You have to have support, support of an executive member, for example, who might protect you, who might shield you, who might say, listen, don't worry what that person saying. I know how they are and I trust you. I know you're doing a good job and don't worry about it. That right there takes all the bullies power away because there's nothing worse than a bully in the workplace who tries to make you feel stupid. They demean you. They put you down. And if you don't have support, you might start believing that. But if you're CEO, if there's somebody on the executive team or on the board who says, listen, uh, they're just a jerk. Don't take what they say seriously. I trust you. I believe in the work that you do. You do good work. Just keep focusing on that. And we're going to continue using this consultant for whatever reason. I'm using consultants because that's always the experience that I've had. Outside consultants coming into an organization just being complete jerks. But in any case, I digress. I want to ask Dr. Everly, since we're talking about the idea of bullying and since bullying is so prevalent today, if he has any other strategies or any other insights into how to deal with bullies. Boy, that's a 
question for another broadcast, I'm afraid. But uh, part, part of it is trying to decide what motivates the bully. And sometimes it's very simple, and sometimes, especially in the workplace, it's, it's far more complex. Mm-hmm. Um, in the schoolyard, the age-old mentality used to be confront the bully. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and you know what? In the movies and TV, it always turns out well. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always turn out well in life. That's right. Sometimes it just empowers the bully, because that's what the bully wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so confronting the bully, sometimes that's effective, but you have to... You have to pick your battles very carefully. Mm-hmm. One of the things, and, and uh, I'm trying to think of the general's name, and it's, I'm blocking on it, but in the Korean War, uh, once the Chinese had entered the war, uh, an American Marine general was confronted with an overwhelming Chinese force, so he uh, he retreated. Mm-hmm. And a newspaper person asked the general, um, why did you retreat? And he took great offense to that. He said, I did not retreat. I advanced in another direction. Uh, I Hmm. think sometimes the best course of action is to try to minimize your contact with the bully, whomever that might be. Go work around the bully. In some cases, give the bully its due, Hmm. but work around it. Don't let it stifle you. Uh, and some people immediately push back and say, "Oh no, 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 no! That's that's not what that's not how to build a strong character." And you're treating it. No, no, no! You're advancing in another direction. You're picking your fights. Think of one of the greatest generals of all time. His name was Hannibal. Hmm. The most, the largest army he ever had was roughly ninety thousand. He would, he would constantly encounter Roman legions of 100,000, 200, 250,000, and he would defeat them. He was never defeated on the battlefield except for his last battle, and yet he never had the largest army. The key, he always picked the battlefield. Hmm. He always picked his fights. Wow. Maybe there's a lesson there for us. Now, before we move on from this attribute of resilience and move on to the next one, I had to ask Dr. Everly to touch on the element of homophily, and proximity around building interpersonal support because those are two terms that well obviously i've heard about proximity homophily never heard about that before but i'm very interested in understanding how homophily and proximity can help me understand how to build stronger interpersonal support had to ask him about that one how to make friends how to find a support system there is believe it or not a formula for it (laughs) and um homophily find people who have shared interests proximity go to where they are it's pretty much that simple um don't try to be the round peg in the square hole um it's it's about finding people of a similar orientation of 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 similar likes and dislikes and you'll find a connection almost instantly that's not to say you shouldn't expand your horizons personally as well as professionally and avocationally but you 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 find your comfort zone around people uh, of a similar ilk so go where those people are likely to be find a a thread of commonality a common denominator that brings you together even though you don't know one another how many times have you have you been out of the country for example and you're at a restaurant and all of a sudden you notice there are 
some Americans. I'm American. There are Americans at another table. All of a sudden, you find a bond. That's right. You don't know these people. They could be from the other side of the country. You, If you were in the United States, you probably would never give them a second glance. But, ah, in a different context, you share a common denominator. Now you move over to, hi, I just noticed you seem to be American. I wanted to introduce myself. I'm in the country for a few. And you know what? Now you have some friends to travel the country with That's all right. of a sudden. Moving on now to the third attribute of resilience, and this one's my favorite one. I Actually, it's kind of a lie. But my favorite one's the last one, but this is also a good one. <laughs> Decisive action. And I talk about this one with my friends all the time. What are you doing to change your life for the better? What actions are you taking? What decisions are you making today to improve your life tomorrow? Whether it's health-related, Money related, just decisions on where you put your time. Listen, I get it. At some point in time, we were all like this, where, you know, instead of doing the project, we procrastinated and we went out and partied. Yeah, I was, I've been there. Instead of going to the gym, you know, I sat down and watched something on Netflix and had a bag of chips. Yeah, well, I've been there too. It's called being human. But you have to try and minimize those moments and you have to make decisive action to better your life. But a big piece of resilience is being able to have the confidence to make those decisions. This is a really big one because I believe that today we're scared of making decisions. We're scared of making commitments that could change the course of our life. So I'm really excited for you to hear what Dr. Everly has to say about decisive action. So I was a really, really shy kid. And if I look back at my shyness, it was fear of failure and fear of being rejected Hmm. in a nutshell. You ask most shy kids, now it's that. They may not articulate it quite that way, but shy adults could probably do it if they're willing to even listen to those words. I was 40 years old, learned one of the best lessons of my life. My young daughter asked me to to, um, skate. I I, I never quite learned to be quite proficient (laughs) at skating. And yet... At that point in my career, um, I had a uh, prestigious job at one of the top universities in the world, and I thought to myself, uh, a professor at this lauded institution does not go onto the ice and look foolish. It didn't hit my my image, right? Mm-hmm. So really what I was saying is I'm scared. But I didn't, of course I wasn't going to say that to anybody. <laughs> uh, and my daughter kept skating by, and I'm thinking she's 10 years old. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime experience that may be gone tomorrow. So I went over, and I I thought to myself, you know, anything worth having is worth failing for. Hmm. I rented the skates. I went out on the ice. I actually fell down and broke my elbow. But, But you know what? One of the best days of my life. Wow. Because we spent priceless time together. Would I do it again, knowing the outcome? Absolutely. Hmm. I then took that and became that became one of my one of my mantras. Anything worth having is worth failing for. Hmm. And that. if you have that active optimism, you put that in the formula. What do you get? It's not a failure. It's a stepping stone to success. The only time you fail is when you stop trying. Hmm. Oh man, I, I love stories like that. Stories like the one he just told really helps to crystallize the point. I can I can visualize it in my head. 
Love that. So in the same vein that we're talking about decisive action, there's an element in the book, again, something that I found very intriguing, that he calls the halo effect. Yeah, it, it was actually um, a sociologist's uh, idea, hmm. and uh, I simply brought it into the field of resilience. Hmm. The, the halo effect is, in its most simplistic form, how many times have you seen a sports star advertising a product that has nothing to do with their sport? All the time. All the time, right? Mm-hmm. Or a movie star advertising something that has nothing to do with being an, an actor. And yet there is this credibility because we know your face, we know your name, you're famous, you, you're a celebrity. I mean, it's, it's one of the stupidest lines of reasoning there is. I mean, oh my God. Why would I, why would I buy car insurance from a football player's recommendation? Oh, come on. And yet people do it, right? Mm-hmm. Irrational. Mm-hmm. But they have the halo effect going for them. Mm. So the halo effect is if you're good at football, you must be good at everything. Hmm. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. But if you know the halo effect works, mm-hmm. you can use it to your advantage. So what I tell people, the first step at overcoming shyness, the first step at be- overcoming a, um, shall we say, a lower than desired sense of self, self-esteem, mm-hmm. You know what I say? Say, fake it. Hmm. Pretend you are who you want to be. Hmm. If you fake it and you do it well, and actors do that all the time, right? Hmm. We all can be that actor. With time, you begin to believe it because other people look at you. They believe and they say, I don't know what that guy's going for. Hmm. I don't know what that woman has going for but they must be special because they're acting like they're special. Mm-hmm. And they start treating you like you're special. And then th- because they're treating you like you're special, you start acting again and believing you're special. <laughs> and that's where the self-fulfilling prophecy comes in. So I love what Dr. Everly's saying here about the idea of fake it before you make it. To a certain extent. I also disagree with him on that aspect because of how people can interpret that point. I agree with fake it before you make it if that's something that you believe internally. So for example, you might say, I am wanting to become a whatever, whatever it is you want to become. I want to become a a world-class sales expert. So in your mind, you might say, I am great at sales. I'm fantastic because I research sales all the time. I practice all the time and this is who I am. But don't go out there on Instagram and go buy or rent a Lamborghini. You're not going to buy it, but don't go rent a Lamborghini. Don't go rent out a house for a weekend. Don't rent out a camera crew and pay a whole bunch of Instagram male or female models to go ahead and pose and say, hey, I'm an expert at sales and you should learn from me. So go ahead, buy my course, download my whatever, and you're going to learn how to be successful at sales too. When you don't know jack can't stand that and there's too much of that today that's a result of people faking it before they make it and i completely disagree with that because guess what in a world of social media where we're all connected people like that get found out very very easily so i'm all for fake it before you make it but make sure that's an internal thing and not an external thing don't project that outwardly i can't stand that you know what the reason why i can't stand that was because i used to be that 
I used to be that in high school where I thought I knew everything. I was so smart. And I think it's just a part of maturity, a part of growing up. But unfortunately, some people never get there. So again, fake it before you make it. Love it. Make sure it's internal. Don't project that outwardly. But before we leave this one about decisive action, I just want to bring up one more point, which I think perhaps some of you out there in Cut the Crap Nation, maybe you're dealing with. And the fact that you're scared to make decisions. Some of you are maybe not happy with where you're at in life. And so you're wandering. You're trying something out here. You're trying something out here. You're taking a course here. You're watching a video there. And you're essentially wandering about. And you're not making decisive action that's going to help move you forward in life. You're not putting your flag in the ground. So I had to ask Dr. Everly for some advice for those of you out there who are listening, who are saying, well, you know what? Like I'm having a tough time making a decision because I just don't know what I want to do. So I had to hear what he had to say about that. Well, first of all, you have to tease out. It's, it's not psychoanalytic. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy, but you got to tease out what the hesitation is about. So we go back to the previous conversation. Is it about fear of failure? Mm. Okay. We, we, we can deal with that. Sometimes it's, have you ever heard the, the term FOMO? Of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. Fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not fear of failure at all. It's, gee, I, I want to do everything. Mm-hmm. And so um, I have uh, ADHD, as a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems we have is making a choice because we want to do everything. Or we're distracted from one to the other, to the other, to the other, to the other. And it makes it hard to just focus on one particular thing. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, uh, again, th- there are a couple of little mantras I've picked up in my life. And I, I told you one was uh, about failure. Anything worth having is worth failing for. The other one, that, which has really helped me a lot, I think, is is the idea of the moment of absolute certainty never arrives. Hmm. Sometimes you just have to act. Well, how many times have we waited for that moment of absolute certainty, a vision, a signal, a something, that this is the course of action, but sadly, that signal never came, and guess what? The opportunity went away. Hmm. And some action is better than none in the vast majority of cases. Not always, Mm -hmm. but in the vast majority of cases as it pertains to our discussion of decisiveness. How many times have you worked for somebody? This is a rhetorical question, not to you. But how many times have you you worked for someone who could not make a decision? Hmm. Leaders, managers who can't make this decision suck the life out of of an organization. Mm -hmm. It's usually unless it's irreparable, it's usually better to make a decision and make maybe some adjustments along the route. Hmm. Uh, Don't expect it to be perfect. Strive for excellence and understand that you may have to stop and regroup occasionally, but, but you gotta, you've got to overcome inertia. The moment of absolute certainty never arrives. I love that. And that's something to absolutely keep top of mind when you're making decisive action. And the fact that if you're waiting for all signs to point to yes, that's never going to happen. What a great point to help reassure you as you move on in life and make decisive action. All right, now moving on to the fourth attribute of resilience. This was a little bit of a different one and it took me for a curveball because I wasn't 
really sure how this one played into building resilience. And the fourth attribute is moral compass. Your moral compass. Honor, integrity, fidelity, and ethical behavior. All of those must guide your decisions whether things are going well or the chips are down. So your moral compass is an attribute of helping you build resilience. It's interesting. Can't wait to hear what Dr. Everly has to share with you about this one. Um, not sure if you've ever read George Santayana. He was the Harvard philosopher. Actually made it to the cover of Time magazine once mm-hmm. upon a time. But he once said, our character is an omen of our destiny. And the more integrity we have and keep, the simpler and nobler that destiny is likely to be. Mm-hmm. You know, when you meet a really, tr- truly honest person that seems to have a, a moral compass, you feel safe around them. You trust them, and you're more likely to follow them if, if that is what is indicated. But you certainly feel that sense of trust. Um, and it goes, it goes back as far as, uh, if you've ever read, read Sun Tzu, he, he was a, a Chinese philosopher and war strategist, and he, he said that, you know, your, your soldiers will follow you into the deepest, darkest valleys as long as you have a sense of morality. Hmm. So, I mean, the theme last, has lasted thousands of years. Um, even uh, uh, you get into uh, thinking about, well, what are the implications for my actions? One of my favorite movies was The Gladiator. And in that movie, Russell Crowe, Maximus, if you will, said, what you do today will echo for eternity. If you don't have a moral compass, you're all over the place. Man, George Santayana, you magnificent, brilliant human being. (laughs) Our character is an omen of our destiny. And the more integrity we have and keep, the simpler and nobler that destiny is likely to be. I love that. I've always believed that if you're a good person at heart, if you act from the heart, if you truly are a good person, good things will happen to you. I've always believed that. I have to believe that. That's how my life has been so far. And My moral compass is essentially what guides a lot of my decisions. And this quote right there, it's so perfect. It helps us summarize this golden nugget so well. But I think I could do you one better there and tell you a story. Well, I'm not going to tell you a story. I'll get Dr. Everly to tell you that story. And it's a story about pro golfer Brian Davis. I'm, I'm far from a rules expert, but uh, <laughs> as I remember, he uh, he was had had not won a championship and was very very close to doing so in a playoff, mm-hmm. and um, hit a ball, and it was in a somewhat precarious position, and in his backstroke hit um, an impediment, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went ahead and, and hit hit the ball, and he stopped, and he said, you know, he went to the judge, and he said, I, I think my club struck an impediment, which is a two-stroke penalty. Mm-hmm. The judge said, I did not see it. But uh, he, he persisted, and uh, they went and saw the videotape, still didn't see anything, mm-hmm. put it to slow motion, and sure enough, his club hit something, right. which was an automatic two-stroke penalty. Mm-hmm. He now has disqualified himself from the – at that point, the greatest progression mm-hmm. of his career. He was 
potentially going to win his first golf tournament. And yet he disqualified, he functionally disqualified himself by That's virtue right. of giving himself a two stroke penalty. I mean, That's right. does that take your breath away? I mean, how many I people know. lose <laughs> That story. I love it. The man has such a strong moral compass and it's inspiring to me. Well, inspiring to me in life, but not in golf. I don't care about golf. As all my friends know, <laughs> I'm not above picking up my ball in the fairway and no one's looking. I'm going I'm to chuck that ball 50 yards because I'm terrible at golf. Everybody knows it. I don't care. I just go out there to have a good time. But listen, like this was the man's career. This was his passion. He was had an opportunity to make a whole bunch of money and his moral compass led him. And, and I love that. I truly love that. It's very inspiring for all of us to look up to. All right, here we go. The last attribute, the fifth attribute that makes up resilience. And I said this before, this one is my favorite one. Relentless tenacity. Man, I have been, I believe so strongly in persistence. When I was growing up, my mentor, Chet Holmes, always told me that what he loved about me was my PhD, my pig-headed determination. And that was just something that I've always carried with me. I will always move forward. And despite going through pain a lot of the times, I will get to my destination. And some people laugh at me because I do that. But I'm telling you, if you want to create something great in life, if you want to do something that is, you know, a step up from where you were last year, you need to have relentless tenacity in the achievement of your goals. So I'm excited for Dr. Everly to share some more information with you about this final attribute of resilience. From what I can tell, tenacity is the single best predictor of success at almost anything you do. Um, we said that interpersonal support is the best predictor of resilience. But tenacity certainly feeds into that and support into tenacity. But, but basically, we're talking about perseverance. And um, we just, uh, uh, myself and two uh, co-authors, just, just, I've written 20 books in my life. About five of them were for the general market, such as uh, uh, Stronger. Most of them have been medical textbooks, psychological textbooks. But we just wrote a children's book. And it's um, uh, about, about, you know, what are the core lessons that you can teach a kid? And there were two. One was how to make a friend, and that plays into the interpersonal support. And the other is tenacity, that we are, our fear is that we are raising children whose egos are so fragile that once they fail, they give up, and they give up on the mechanism that may be the greatest predictor of success, other than in things like you know, if you're a piano prodigy or math prodigy or something like that, that's hardwired. Okay, I get it. But most things in life, aren't they a function of just not giving up? That's right. Aren't they a function of just continuing to try? And, and an interesting thing that we've learned in the last, oh, say, 10 years is that you can literally rewire your brain to be good at something you were never good at. But what's the key? Repetition. Hmm. Keep doing it over and over and over and over again. And you can literally we rewire the brain, which when I studied neurology back in the dark ages, we, <laughs> we weren't really sure about those kinds of things. Now, now we know, you know, 
what undergirds someone's success that's tenacious? Well, the more you try, the more opportunities just spontaneously arise. Mm -hmm. The more you try, the more people you meet that may be supportive. The more you try, the more you rewire the brain to develop a a, a strength that uh, might not have been there before. So do you see your failure as stepping stones to success or do you see them as a brick wall? Most people, and and, and I think the the celebrities that that argue for the value of failure are are legion. Michael Jordan talks about all of his failures and that his successes were contingent upon his his failures. Uh, Al Newhart the founder of USA Today. Mm-hmm. I mean, who comes up with the idea of a nationwide magazine? Oh, come on. <laughs> I remember when he start, came out, I said, ah, it's not going to work. <laughs> it led to a, an empire. That's right. And so, so you read his biography, and what does he say? I am who I am because of my failures. Mm. They build strengths of character. What, what is an immunization? It's taking a little bit of a, of, a, of a bacterium, of a virus, of a something, injecting it into the system. It may make you feel run down, may make you a little sick, but you know what? Your body comes back stronger because of it. And when you're introduced now to the full-fledged whatever it is, virus, mm-hmm. you beat it down. That's right. And. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's almost a biological example of what the body does with tenacity. It's, it's all through psychology. It's all through biology, the importance of, of – uh, th- th- let me add one quick thing, however. Um, there are some people that just don't know when to give up, and, and you, you, <laughs> there is a time for that. And the answer when people ask me, but when, when do you give up? Because, you know, what is gambling addiction? Isn't that the failure to give up when you should? Hmm. And, you know, the answer ultimately boils down to when the ultimate payoff, the quest for the payoff, I should say, costs you painfully, dearly, and perhaps more than you would ever gain on the reward. That's the time to just mm-hmm. advance in another direction. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think that but, but tenacity is, is, is hard is getting harder and harder to teach. Hmm. And I think it's because we are we're overly protective. But that's a that's a podcast of its own. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yes, that is definitely gonna be on another podcast. But I'm telling you what a great discussion I had with Dr. George Everly about his book Stronger. Develop the resilience you need to succeed. So many great takeaways from this one. I hope you go back over it and you listen to it once, twice, three times, just to make sure that it sinks in for you. Because I'm telling you, the precursor to all success is resilience. And you need to study resilience just like you would study sales if you were going to become a sales professional. Just like you would study health if you wanted to become a personal trainer. Just like you would study whatever, the body and medicine if you wanted to become a doctor. You have to study resilience if you want to succeed. It's so important, and that's why you tune in every single week because you want to learn about resilience. You want to develop mental toughness, and in your path to doing so, you're tuning in to me every single week, and I'm bringing books, bringing information, bringing stimulus to you to help you get there. So if you love this episode, then please. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, 
then just go online, rate and review the show. It's very simple. All you have to do is open up your podcast app, hit library, shows, find the Cut the Crap show. And when you click on the show, all you got to do is scroll down a little bit where it says ratings and reviews and give this bad boy five stars. Hell, you know what? Give me whatever stars you want. If you want to give me one star, then at least you got to tell me how I can improve so I can take that one and turn it into a five because every single star, it means a lot to me. And your feedback obviously means a whole hell of a lot to me. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you to give me five stars. Be honest. Tell me what you think it's worth this show. And um, you obviously got to give me some feedback to help me make it better. And I'm going to call it out and I'm going to uh, do my best to try and improve. But in any case, also, hey, one more thing. Don't forget, obviously, connect with me on Instagram. It's all at Ryan Caligiuri, at Ryan Caligiuri on Instagram, at Ryan Caligiuri on Twitter, at Ryan Caligiuri on Facebook, and um, what's the other one? Oh, obviously, LinkedIn as well. Hit me up on all of those. I'm so happy that so many of you have reached out to me, especially on Instagram. I'm so surprised to see how many people reach out to me by DM on Instagram. And please, keep that up. On the Facebook page as well. I don't have a personal page, but I do have a, um, a profile page. So follow that. Talk to me on there. I truly love it. I had some people actually sending me um, pictures of them where they're listening. And hell, just send me a picture of where you're listening today. Are you on the subway in New York? This gentleman, for example, he was in Taipei and he took a picture of a building saying he was listening to me in Taipei. I, I love that stuff. So anyways, connect with me on there and uh, that'll just mean a whole hell of a lot to me. And tell me that you found me through the show. But in any case, that is a wrap for this week, my friends. So thank you so much again for tuning in. Always means a lot to me that you do, and I take your attention very seriously, and I'm very grateful for that. So until next week, I'll be back here with a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And of course, you know what I'm doing here every single week. It's trying to save you a little bit of time, bring you some information that can spark change in your life, and I'm trying to help you build mental toughness and resilience every single day. Have a fantastic, productive, inspired week, everybody. I love you all. Your gift will make room for you. Now, what is your gift? It's the thing that you do the absolute best with the least amount of effort. That's your gift. Quit running away from the gift. Your gift will make room for you. Stop trying to be something you ain't gifted at. Nobody asked you to go down here and study to be a dentist, and you ain't really good at that. Quit going down to the church trying to sing. You can't sing. Now, just because they let you sing at the church, you're not finna, ain't nobody else finna go with this. Cause you know, come as you are, the Lord loveth a cheerful giver, all that. We don't apply scriptures out here. You come to the Apollo and you can't sing, we got something for your ass up there. <laughs> Period. Listen to me. All of you have this gift. Identify it. It's the thing that you do the absolute best with the least amount of effort. That's what you should be doing. You're wasting your time pursuing your passion. The Bible does not mention passion. It mentions your gift. What are you gifted at and do that? Stop tripping. You can do that. If you fry chicken better than everybody you know, you ought to be somewhere frying chicken. People make millions of dollars frying chicken. Popeyes, Kentucky Fried Chicken, El Pollo Loco. All they doing is making chicken. They just found a way to do it. Somebody just started making chicken. 
You know the story of Marie Callender's? Do you know what this woman did, man? She worked for a diner, a greasy spoon diner that was going out of business. It was her only job. She was a single mother. It was her only job. She needed that job, but the diner was going to close. So she went to the owner of the diner and said, let me bake one of my pies, people like my pies, and see if I can help you make a little money. He said, whatever, bring it in. He, she bought one pie in. They sold every slice. The next day, the people came in and asked for the pie. She had to go home and make another pie. The next day, so many people asked for the pie, she had to make four pies. Then people started saying, can I buy my own pie? She made so many pies at this store that she eventually saved her money and put a commercial oven in her house. Now all, she done made so many pies, the dude's shop, he ain't selling hamburger no more. All he's selling is them damn pies. That's how Marie Callender got started. Marie Callender now has over 120 restaurants. You can't go to no frozen food section without seeing Marie Callender in there. You know what she started with? A pie. One pie. The dude that, when I had hair, when I had that world famous lining with that box cut when I was Steve Hightower, Kings of Comedy, when I had that hair, the dude that cut my hair, I met him in 1986. He cut my hair for $10. I remember him. When I got on TV, I had hired him. He came out there, he started making $300 a haircut. I paid him 10. He had been with me so many years that he was making $1,500 per haircut. I was getting my haircut four times a week for television and touring. I paid him $1,500 each time. He was making $6,000 a week. You know what he was doing? Cutting hair. That same haircut I paid $10 for in 87, this dude was cutting it now for me for 1500 I cut my hair off. He, he, <laughs> we had to put him on suicide watch for a little while. But then let me tell you what he did. I paid him a chunk of money for being with me all these years. Gave him a severance pay. Told him good luck. Guess what this dude got now? He got four salons and he owned two barber colleges. You know what this dude make now? 3.6 million a year. You know what he do? He cut hair. He cut hair. He don't do nothing else. That's his gift. Friend of mine we grew up with, all he did was cut grass. He had a single blade lawnmower that he pushed. He was so good at it, he could raise the blades up and lower them. He could cut patterns in your grass. We little, I'm going, hey man, we going swimming. Now I got to cut Miss Jackson grass. He could cut patterns in your yard. He could put your initials in your grass as a little boy. $2 for the front, $2 for the back. $4. We used to laugh at him all the time. Well, let me tell you what we're laughing at now. He got a landscaping company in Cleveland. You know how much this boy making? $4 million a year. You know what he do? He cut grass. He got 38 trucks. He got all the contracts in the city, malls, corporations. And when it's snow outside, he do such a good job cutting the grass, he put plows on the front of his trucks, and he got all the snow removal contracts. This boy making $4 million a year, and you know what he do? He cut grass.